Right, hi. Um, quick apologies in advance. If anything I don't talk about is covered, I could sit here for hours. One of the great challenges I find in coming to SHB is condensing stuff down. So by all means, come and ask me questions afterwards. Most of what I talk about is on my blog um, as well, if people are interested. Very quick disclaimer, one of the slides I'll be talking about, I will ask not to be live blogged or tweeted, and I will explain why when I come to it, but all of the others feel free to circulate. So, what am I going to talk about? I'll use this to advance. Um, my background, uh, for those who aren't familiar with my work, is I'm a social psychologist, so what I'm interested in is looking at groups, looking at how people come together and behave in groups, specifically how crowds behave, and by crowds I mean groups of people who don't have a formal spontaneous, who don't have a formal decision-making process and they're in face-to-face -face contact with each other, so this could be protests, groups, demonstrations, festivals, or people who happen just to be caught up in an emergency. So it's kind of those kind of things that I'm interested in looking in. Um, what I'm interested in is countering what I often see as a moral panic about crowds. There's often a very deeply held idea in social discourse, and also, until fairly recently, in emergency planning and uh, public order policing, the idea that crowds are to be feared. Crowds are to be feared either because they're bad, they can do bad things, uh, looting, pillaging, raping, and, and all those awful things that crowds can do when you hear of demonstrations, but also that they could be mad as well. And by that I mean in mass emergencies, people are prone to hysteria, mass panic, stampedes, and things like that. So pretty much most of my career has been countering what I think are, are myths like that, because... Uh, most crowd events, when you look at them in forensic detail, they don't actually stand up to the pejorative terms that are used to describe them. And so most of what I do is looking in forensic detail and saying, well, what actually are these crowds doing when we look at them? And so that's why I'm very critical of notions like panic and mobs and things like that. We use a model that's called the social identity model of collective resilience. And it's the idea that um, a sense of resilience emerges from a shared identity that people have. Um, and so that's why a psychological crowd, to me, um, is more interesting than a bunch of atomised people. Because you can have physical aggregates, you can have masses of people, for example, a bunch of shoppers on a Saturday afternoon in any um, town or city. But I would say they need something to unite them, to give them a common purpose to act as one with a shared identity. So, for example, on 7-7, you had um, trains full of people who normally have no psychological connection with each other. For those of you who've travelled on the Tube, uh, you will have experienced the fact that people do not talk to each other. Um, on 7-7, that changed incredibly quickly because a physical crowd suddenly became a psychological crowd very quickly. And we would argue that that explains the remarkable cooperation and altruism you see. So it's a kind of emergent resilience, which is slightly different from other mod models of resilience, that this resilience emerges from the incident itself. So that's kind of where I come from. So what I've been looking at recently, um, I'll try and broaden it out because previously at these things I've talked mainly about my work on mass emergencies. Recently I've expanded it out to look at other things um, because uh, the recent disorder that's happened in, the in Britain and England um, in the last few years, I'm thinking of the 2011 riots and the 2010 tuition fees protest, I would say a real moral panic was generated 
amongst British order policing strategy. Um, the police were criticised for not being tough enough on the protests and allowing them to escalate. For example, in 2010, allowing the Conservative Party headquarters at Millbank to be occupied, and in the 2011 riots, allowing the riots to spread like wildfire. <laughs> And I would say that this pressure, which was largely political, was not based on any kind of social scientific evidence of crowd behaviour, but by political considerations. And from that, a discourse has emerged, arguing that the police need more robust and distance tactics. By distance tactics, I mean things like water cannon. And this slide is from where the only place in the United Kingdom where your water cannon is currently used, which is in Northern Ireland, um, policing sectarian protests and marches. So that's the only place in the United where water cannon is currently used. There is a plan, and I have to say I think it's quite likely, that water cannon is going to be rolled out across the whole of England and possibly Britain, Scotland and Wales. Um, and it's an approach that I and other crowd psychologists would be very critical of um, because it's one of many indiscriminate public order tactics. Most police public order tactics are indiscriminate because you can't charge or kettle, which is the popular name for containing a crowd, you can't kettle or charge half a crowd. Uh, by their very definition, a lot of public order tactics are indiscriminate. What psychologists have found, though, is that this tends to unite crowds psychologically. It sounds a bit commonsensical, um, but if you look beyond that, you, what you find is that rather than de-escalating disorder, these tactics tend to escalate disorder. And it's something I found studying people who've, uh, been, uh, who've experienced police charges, and also um, a report I wrote on the proposed introduction of water cannon, um, that it would probably escalate disorder. Um, and there's two main common sense cliches that we used in the public consultation period to argue for the introduction of water cannon. And the two main ones were that um, there was a real moral panic about looting in 2011. There, were, there was footage, uh, I don't know if people remember it, of people looting across England up and down the country. And this caused a real moral panic. And it was said, we need water cannon to deal with this. Um, the, the unfortunate thing with that particular thing is that using water cannon against people um, who are looting is probably worse than useless. It's probably counterproductive. And again, this probably sounds like common sense, but if you're engaged in looting, you scatter on the mere arrival of the police because the police are bad for business when people are looting. You can't get away with as many goods as one would like to if there are police are on site. So the very arrival of the police would mean that crowds would scatter. Now, introducing water cannon to that situation would mean that they would probably scatter quicker and further, and so it could actually spread the problem across a wider geographical area. Another argument that would be used, and I would say this is a real common sense cliche that's not based on any evidence at all of studies of crowd disorder, is that there's this kind of notion that we need to create discourse, the police, sorry, distance. The police need to create distance between themselves and the rioters to allow the emergency services to operate safely. And by that, I mean the fire and rescue services and ambulance services and paramedics, because there was a lot of criticism in 2011 that in some situations, particularly in Croydon in South London, the fire brigade were not deployed because of concerns for their own safety. And this is where you have the Reeves furniture store burning to the ground because the firefighters were not allowed to actually be deployed and go in and tackle the fire until it engulfed the whole building. And that was one of the iconic images of the 2011 riots. 
I would argue that there's actually very, very little evidence of collective um, attacks by crowds against either paramedics or fire and rescue services. It's not to say that there aren't individual antisocial acts that occur, but the idea that a crowd would necessarily automatically attack other emergency services on their mere arrival is just not supported by the evidence. And this image here... um, I, do, I work in the School of Nursing and Paramedics, so I use this image when I talk to paramedics about public order policing. This is a photo from a demonstration in Brighton a few years ago when there was a march by the March for England, which is a neo-fascist organisation that marches in Brighton specifically because they attract mass protests. And so in this situation, we had a paramedic in full riot gear, right, standing right next to policemen. And this always gets a good reaction from paramedic students because pretty much 90 to 95% of the time, they look at that and are horrified and would say, I would never want to be in that situation. Um, the concern is that that would actually increase attacks on paramedics. And I would say for two reasons. One, the crowd might accidentally think that this person standing within the police is also a police officer if they don't see the ambulance thing on the shield and then accidentally attack them. But also, more interestingly, it could be that the crowds see them psychologically similar to the police, that if they deploy with them and stand next to them, then therefore they are of the same group. And so I would say that that actually could increase the attacks. And um, in public order situations I've seen in London, the ambulance service are very, very keen to make sure they're always deployed in a different location from the police. And that means that collective attacks are that much rarer. Um, so I would say this is arguments for why the, the main perception behind crowd disorder is largely a myth. I'll move on to the main body of my research, and, and apologies um, if, if you're aware of this, is the idea of mass emergencies. This is my own research background. Um, there is a real narrative that in disasters, communities descend into antisocial behaviour. I've previously talked about um, Hurricane Katrina and how the, the reports of all the awful behaviours that allegedly happened afterwards are massively exaggerated. And more recently, this has happened with uh, Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines and also in the floods in England at the start of this year. This is... Um, may not be able to see it very well. This is taken from a convention centre in the Philippines near Tacloban after the hurricane hit. And to me, it has very scary parallels with the convention centre in New Orleans. It even looks similar. And I remember when Hurricane... uh, Sorry, Typhoon Haiyan hit, there was a BBC reporter walking up and down the street of devastation and going, this is crazy, the crowd's descending into hysteria and there's looting. And he didn't seem to kind of recognise the fact that he was the only person in the shop. He was walking in a completely deserted street. So it's like, OK, well, where, if this looting's going on, where is it? Why aren't you reporting it? And the irony is, is that in a lot of these situations, and again, um, I don't make any claims that crime or antisocial behaviour disappears. There's clearly anecdotal evidence that it still occurs. But usually the crime rates drop rather than increase. And... Um, If people do help themselves to goods and things like that, um, it's usually because they perceive that they've been deserted and left to their own devices by the authorities. And it's usually when the local infrastructure breaks down that people think, well, if I don't go and get these supplies, I and my family and my community could die. Um, And so that's when it usually happens. People usually do kind of wait and see if they can be helped. And so in these situations, it's usually a failure of emergency management if and when supposedly antisocial behaviour occurs. But I would say, if you and your family are facing starvation, it's a completely normal thing to find supplies that will make you live and survive a bit longer. Um, 
An area um, where I would say that panic might be a useful description is the concept of elite panic, which is a very good book by Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell, I think, which looks at a catalogue of disasters across the United States, from San Francisco to Katrina. And they found that um, authoritarian and militarised responses often compounded existing problems, and you had situations where suspected looters were being shot on sight, sometimes for the only reason of the colour of their skin, and things like that. And there were shocking accounts of uh, racism and things like that, um, which showed that these created a very militarised and authoritarian response, which I would say actually creates problems that may not have been there previously. So, conclusions then, and I'll finish. Um, I would say that the moral panic and fear of crowds often results in responses from the authorities that create problems and can often generate self-fulfilling prophecies. If you treat crowds badly, if you don't allow their resilience to emerge, they may behave in ways that, um, that confirm cliché views that, well, look, they don't have resilience. And I would say that often causes problems. Um, the main thing should be that it should be viewed as a crowd management issue, not a crowd control situation. And it's not just semantics, because if you consider it from a crowd control situation, that influences a whole chain of events that can end up with tragedies such as the Hillsborough disaster. I don't make any claims that there's no risks at all associated with crowds, but I would say they're usually due to physical constraints, physical pressure, and often lack of information. If crowds are given information that they can act upon sensibly to facilitate their safe movement, they will act on it if they're physically able. And any problems that emerge are usually individual problems and so need to be dealt with at an individual level rather than a group level. And finally, and this is often where I rant on my blog, is each time there's a tragedy and the word panic is used, it's often not just lazy journalism, it's sometimes used by those who may actually be negligent in that situation to cover up their own culpability. And so it can actually have a dangerous rhetorical function. So I think we should stop using the term, and I'll finish there. Thank you. There's some references.